0: The Pinterest Lab is now open and ready for you. It's my four-step, no-fluff system to drive traffic and results in under an hour a week using Pinterest. This program is backed by Pinterest and is up to date with all the best practices to get eyes on your content. I'm opening up the Pinterest Lab for a very short window of time. So enroll now and get started for just $39 today at thepinterestlab.com. That's the P-I-N-T-E-R-E-S-T lab.com, where you can get your hands on my system and dig into the complete and proven strategy on how to drive leads and sales using Pinterest. That's the pinterestlab.com. Enroll today.
1: How many of us women have felt exactly those same feelings
0: where our rational
1: brain is telling us, you're qualified, you're qualified. And our emotional brain is telling us, oh, I don't (laughs) like change. I don't like putting myself out there. I'm, I'm scared. I have
0: fear. Hey, my name is Jenna Kutcher and I am obsessed with all things business, marketing numbers, and helping you to navigate both the messy and the magical seasons of this thing called life. She was well on her way to a career as a classical violinist studying under a prestigious mentor at Juilliard School when a career-ending injury changed the course of Maya Shankar's future. It was an incredible loss. Her passion and identity as a classical violinist crumbled, but that major change led to an entirely different career, one that centers on the very thing she struggled with, change. Dr. Maya Shankar is a cognitive scientist who studies how our minds work and how we change. Her career milestones are nothing short of impressive, from convincing the White House to create a job for her, to her work in human behavior and decision-making at Yale, Oxford, and Stanford. She even recently launched her own podcast called A Slight Change of Plans. Dr. Shankar is on Gold Digger to explore the sometimes stress-inducing topic of change. When confronted with a major life or career change, how do we manage and thrive? Are humans today more or less change-averse? And if you think you're bad with change, what can you do about it? Here she is, Dr. Maya Shankar. Thanks to Gusto for supporting the Gold Digger podcast. Gusto offers modern, easy payroll and benefits to small businesses across the country. They were even named Best Online Payroll by PC Meg. Get three months free when you run your first payroll at gusto.com slash Digger. Thank you to Gravy for supporting Gold Digger. Gravy offers a failed payment recovery service for subscription or membership-based businesses to recover the relationship and your revenue. Get a free revenue consultation at jennalovesgravy.com. Maya, welcome to the Gold Digger podcast. I am absolutely thrilled you are coming on the show today.
1: I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I want to know your story is absolutely captivating, like just hearing bits and pieces of it. It's like, whoa, wait, I need to hear more. And so tell me about your early vision that you had for your life and career and then how that changed in order to make you an expert on the subject of change.
1: Yeah, my life has definitely not taken a linear path, that's for sure. (laughs) When I was six years old, my mom went up to our attic and brought down my grandmother's violin that she had brought with her all the way from India and just showed it to me. And I was so captivated by the instrument that I I immediately took to it. And violin just became my life so quickly. So at the age of nine, I ended up auditioning for the Juilliard School of Music in New York. They have a, a Pre college program, and I was really fortunately accepted. And that began commutes from Connecticut to New York, which is where I lived, every single weekend for, you know, 10 hours of classes. And so I was really just absolutely hellbent on becoming a violinist. I think it was so foundational to my identity. And it really picked up when I was in high school. And Itzhak Perlman, who is obviously an incredibly amazing violinist, maybe the best violinist of our time, invited me to be his private violin student. And that was a moment where I realized, wow, maybe I can actually make this my career, you know, because of course you're plagued with insecurities as anyone is. And you're like, do I really have what it takes? And it's such a competitive <laughs> space and all, all my classmates always sound better than I do. Right. You're, you're plagued with all these concerns. But when he took me on as a student, he gave me that vote of confidence that made me believe that I at least had a chance. And so I was on the fast train moving forward. And then suddenly one day I was at, it's at Pearlman summer camp. And I, I heard a popping sound in my hand when I just played a note and I had torn a tendon in my hand, it turned out. And after months and months of trying to make things better, doctors finally told me that I had to stop playing entirely. Uh, And as you can imagine, I was just completely devastated by that turn.
0: So what did you do? I can't even imagine. And thinking about a nine-year-old getting accepted to Juilliard and this becoming really, you know, in such impressionable years of your life, your identity, what happened next that's so intense?
1: Yeah, I was pretty despondent. I mean, as I mentioned, I felt like I was first and foremost a violinist. And, you know, there's this concept in cognitive science called identity foreclosure, but basically it refers to the fact that We can commit ourselves to an identity, a very specific identity, without having explored all the other options out there. And it can lead us to feel really fixed uh, in that identity without, again, having that full exploration process. And I think what's so interesting is that this kind of bias can exist in adolescence, but it can also persist into adulthood, right? And it can emerge in response to just feeling really anxious about uncertainty or change. So I felt that in spades at the time. I was very anxious, very uncertain. I didn't know if I could ever fall in love with something as much as I was with the violin. And then somewhat, you know, just by chance, the summer before college, instead of touring in China with my friends... Playing the violin. I was helping my parents clean their basement. So, you know, just as cool. And I stumbled upon a book about how the mind works. And I was just captivated, Jenna. I had always taken our mind's ability for granted, right? I was like, oh, of course I can speak language and of course I can think things. And, And suddenly I'm reading this book that helps me understand just how sophisticated the cognitive processing is that underlies all of the experiences and ideas and thoughts and beliefs that we have about the world. And I just felt in awe of the mind and I thought, wow, maybe this is the thing that I could study, right? And I was lucky because my undergraduate College had a cognitive science major. It was actually headed by Laurie Santos, who I know was on your show just recently. She was my undergrad mentor and she's been my lifelong friend and mentor ever since. But I remember I joined and she had this monkey lab where she was studying non human primates and she would let students study in this laboratory setting, which was so cool, as you can imagine, right? You get to do actual novel research with non human primates. And I show up to the Class on day one. It's admissions only because, you know, way too many people are interested relative to how many spots there are. And I'm the lowly freshman coming in, being like, hi, <laughs> give me a chance. I'm here. Um, and so, yeah. And so I remember that it was overflowing. There were probably 80 people in the room, and there were like 15 slots. And I sold my soul on that application form. I was like, Laurie, you could have my unborn children. I will take the 6 a.m. <laughs> shift in New Haven. You know, I will do whatever it takes. Just please, please, please let me into the class. And lucky for me, she took a chance on me. I was the only freshman she led into the class that year. And it just completely changed the course of my life. I fell in love with cognitive science and I went on to study it for all four years of undergrad, then got a PhD and then got a postdoc and ever since then had been a practitioner of the field. So I I feel so lucky for that break that, that Laurie gave me.
0: Wow. So I am just like so blown away. And do you ever ponder, I'm sure you do that that you're in cognitive (laughs) science, but finding that book and like how it changed your trajectory. Like, I feel like there are so many people that have these aha moments to their stories, but man, like that absolutely changed your life.
1: It really did, Jenna. And I wasn't expecting it, right? I mean, again, (laughs) I was just helping organize the bookshelves. And believe me, I had stumbled upon a lot of books that didn't captivate me that summer. (laughs) And I just remember thinking, you know, as I'm reading this book, this is what I would do for fun, right? This doesn't feel tedious. It doesn't feel like a chore. It doesn't feel like some of the books I was asked to read in high school that I was reading just because I had to and because I had to write a paper about it. I remember thinking yeah, this is what I would want to do in my free time. And that was a wonderful signal to me that I'd stumbled upon something that was really tapping into a genuine passion and interest.
0: Yeah. So just as you pitched Dr. Lori Santos to make (laughs) sure that you could study the monkeys, you also pitched the White House to create a job for you. And they did. So tell me that story, and and tell me kind of how you made a case for the importance of behavioral science at a governmental level. Yeah,
1: I'll try to take the time machine back. It feels like forever ago. So much in our world. <laughs> but basically, I was, I was doing my postdoc in cognitive neuroscience, and I still remember there was this one day where I was in the basement of a... A brain scanning laboratory. It was a windowless room, and I'd probably been scanning people's brains for like four hours at this point. And this dude comes in, he goes into the scanner, and within minutes, I'm literally peering into his brain. But I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> you know, I don't know if this guy has children. I don't know what his favorite ice cream flavor is. I don't know what he likes yeah. to do. I feel like given my personality, the order of operations is is just not right here. <laughs> I, I prefer to talk to him and engage with him and work in a social environment and work on teams and whatnot. So. It was just this moment of clarity where I realized, you know, in the same way that when I read that book, I realized, wow, I really love this field. I had this moment of clarity in the opposite direction, which was, I don't love this version of this. You know, this is not right, given my temperament. And so I thought to myself, oh, no, I've just spent... (laughs) a long time studying this stuff, right? Probably at that point, like seven years with my PhD plus postdoc. And I'm thinking, what in God's name does a person with a postdoc (laughs) in cognitive (laughs) neuroscience do? So I call it my friend, Laurie Santos, who, as you know, is there for me at critical junctures in my life. And I say, is it too late for me to try to become a general management consultant? Can I interview for those gigs? And she's like, all right, Maya, before you start that interview process, let me tell you about some amazing work that I heard is happening in the federal government. Mm. And she explained to me that there's a program that was helping to feed low-income kids by giving them free or reduced price lunches at school every day. But despite the fact the program was offered, millions of kids were still going hungry every single day. And when they did a behavioral audit, they figured out, that there were a few barriers. One was that the application form was extremely burdensome. So we were requiring, you know, imagine a single mom who's working three shifts trying to make ends meet. We're requiring that she fill out, you know, a document that requires referencing multiple tax documents. And there's a penalty if you get a detail wrong and you have to submit it exactly this day and time. And it just was deterring a lot of families from being able to complete the requirements. And then another barrier And this was one that when I joined the White House, I became very familiar with talking with principals on the ground about what their students were facing, is that a lot of parents felt there was a stigma associated with signing their kids up for a public benefits program. So even though, of course, they had their children's best interests in mind, it was just a tough pill to swallow. So what the government did is it leveraged a behavioral insight called the power of defaults. And it changed the default setting of the program such that all eligible kids were now automatically enrolled in the program. And only if you wanted to actively unenroll your child did you have to take a proactive step. And as a result of this change, where it was, you know, basically went from an opt-in to an opt-out system, 12 and a half million more kids were now eating lunch at school every day. And I remember hearing this example and thinking, oh my goodness, this is exactly what I want to be doing with my life, I want to take insights from my field, And apply them to policies or programs and help improve people's lives. But I didn't to your earlier question, right? There was no job out there. I didn't really know what this (laughs) was involved. And so Lori connected me with a professor named Cass Sunstein. He's like the most cited legal scholar in the world. And he had worked in the Obama administration during the first term and he was, he co-wrote this book, Nudge, which is quite seminal in our field. And I sent him a cold email and I said, Hey, I'm Maya. I've published nothing of significance and (laughs) I have no public policy experience. And I remember Jenna, I did a very classically female thing, which was to totally undersell myself and say, I know I'm not, I actually look back at the email and it it says, you know, I know I'm not cool enough to work with the likes of Obama, but if there's anything in state or local government, I'd really appreciate the opportunity opportunity. And fortunately for me, Cass Sunstein ignored my (laughs) comment and immediately connected me with the president's science advisor. And I was so blown away. So a week later, I'm interviewing you know, I'm a postdoc, so I have no nice clothes. I'm like buying a business suit. I'm asking my roommate if I can borrow her car to to drive to this, you know, this high, you know, this, this White House official's house. And I'm interviewing with him and I'm pitching him on this idea of hiring a dedicated behavioral scientist to work at the intersection of behavioral science and policy, right? Like if we can really understand human behavior and some surprising features of human behavior, then we can use those insights to redesign policy policies and programs to better serve people. And I remember how telling that conversation was because up until this point, you know, I had been waxing poetic about the promise of behavioral science for years. But in this conversation, when I had concrete proposals in mind, one of his responses was, well, that's great because I know First Lady Michelle Obama and we can make that happen. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, yes, I've definitely found the thing I want to do. So that's the origin story for, for getting the job. And again, I was so fortunate that they created it. And then it's a whole nother story about actually building the team, but I feel like I've talked for too long. So I'm going to let you
0: interject. No, well, I just think that's incredible. And I think, you know, a lot of people, and I love that you share this piece of your story where you think you want to go in one direction or you have a passion or a curiosity and and then mm-hmm. you kind of land where you were headed and it's not quite the right landing pad right and we're That's kind great. of faced with these decisions of like do we pivot do we stay you know especially when the dream isn't really the dream and i just love how you kind of took charge and used your resources and dreamt up something that would fit you better that was still in alignment with what you were going after but, but really kind of a, a sharp left in, in where you had found yourself. And I think that's really empowering for women. And I think it's something that, that we need to ask ourselves more is like, is this what I thought it would be? And if it's not, where do I go from here? That's so well said.
1: And that's exactly what I was facing at the time. Believe me, I was extremely anxious about the idea of departing from a pursuit that I had been engaged in for (laughs) so many years at that point. You know, there's this insight in cognitive science called the sunk cost fallacy, and it does lead us to irrationally cling to things that we put a lot of time and effort into, right? Because we don't want to experience the cost of, of departing. I will say that one lesson I learned from this experience is when you are venturing potentially into a new space and you're trying to use the resources that are within your your community, the opportunity might not exist. And what I learned from this White House position is sometimes you can create it for yourself. If the job doesn't exist, try to get the job to exist. And I think I learned this lesson actually from a very early age. It took a slightly different form, but I think it's related, which is, you know, growing up, I'm from a family of immigrants. My mom and dad immigrated from India. They had no connections in the Western classical music world, right? My grandmother had played Eastern (laughs) classical violin, you know, Indian classical violin, but they moved to this country. I'm the youngest of four kids. And I clearly have a passion for the violin, but my mom has absolutely no connections. And I remember, you know, we heard about Juilliard and I was so eager to potentially apply, but there was no in, we didn't know how that would work. So yeah. one day I'm in New York. We're just, my mom and I are on a trip together. I have my violin with me and we're walking by the Juilliard building. And my mom says, why don't we just go in? Like, what's the worst thing that can happen? It's like, wait, what are you talking about? What do you mean just go in? She's like, let's just see what happens. I mean, you have your violin, just let's just try. And so- I We walked into the building unannounced, uninvited. And my mom strikes up a conversation with a a fellow student in the elevator and says, Hey, my daughter plays the violin. Would you mind just introducing her to your teacher, your violin teacher after your lesson's over? And she agreed to do that. And I auditioned on the spot for this teacher. He ended up taking me on for a summer program that was essentially a boot camp. I probably improved 10X during that 5 week camp. And it's only because my mom had the boldness to walk into Juilliard that day that I had any shot of getting accepted into the program that fall. And so I'm so grateful to have learned the value of just putting yourself out there, right? Like the yes. it's the cold call method and it led me to send, you know, that cold email to Cass Sunstein when I didn't know who he was and I had no public policy experience and I have been sending cold emails ever since.
0: <laughs> and so yeah, <laughs> thanks thanks to it. my mom. You know, and I I love that, like, what's the worst that can happen? And it's usually, it's really not that bad, right? They don't respond. They tell you no, whatever. But you never know. I think we need a little bit more of your mom's zest as we continue on in our journeys, right? I think that's right. And when you're a kid, especially,
1: you're thinking no, the worst thing that can happen is terrible. I'll be embarrassed. Yes. I'll be rejected. We won't make any progress on this mission. And I think she just made me feel comfortable with all those outcomes, right? That yes. none of them were actually that scary. And I really used that spirit. I and mean, then I've tried to cultivate that kind of courage in me ever since.
0: Okay. So I'm going to ask you some of the technicalities of your expertise, because let's be honest, this is new to me. I was not in my parents' basement reading books about this. (laughs) So first, can you just walk me through, like, what is cognitive science? Definitely. So cognitive science,
1: behavioral science, behavioral economics, these are all very related terms and, and listeners may have heard of some variants of them. But it's basically a study of how the mind works. It, it's the study of how and why we make decisions, as well as how we develop our attitudes and beliefs about the world. And one thing that it teaches us is that there are many surprising factors that influence our behaviors, factors we might not even be consciously aware of. And so if we can appreciate what these factors are, then in turn, we can design public programs, policies, products, what have you, to be more effective and, and more responsive to people's needs.
0: Ooh, that's a great way to break it down. And I think, too, it's one of those things where when you start to become aware of it, I think that curiosity naturally follows it. And I mean, you really followed that curiosity. But even just hearing you describe that, I'm like, it could really help anyone that wants to make a difference or an impact or start a business or run with an idea. I think that's fascinating.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I'm biased because I study this stuff for a living, but I'm obsessed.
0: (laughs) Oh, well, you're really making me catch a bug over here, which I love. (laughs) What is effective forecasting? So this is a term you've used, and I'm not super familiar with it. So walk me through what that means.
1: Yeah, it refers to our own ability to predict how it is that we will respond to events in the future. Mm. And what research shows is that our predictions are often very unreliable. We reliably misjudge what will make us happy. And we tend to overestimate just how positive or negative we will feel about future situations. So, let me give you a concrete example of this out in the real world. So, for my new podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I've been interviewing all kinds of people about the remarkable changes that they've experienced in their life. So, people like Tiffany Haddish and Hillary Clinton and Tommy Caldwell and Casey Musgraves, but also just regular people, right? Like you and me. Uh, Well, maybe you're are not a regular person, Jenna, because you're kind of a badass. I feel like I'm a regular person. (laughs) Totally regular. I'm 100% regular. (laughs) So one of the people that I I interviewed, his name is Scott. He prefers to stay anonymous. I won't share what his last name is, but he is a cancer researcher by profession. And he's also a self-proclaimed health nut. So for the past 10 years or so, he has been absolutely militant about the choices he's made when it comes to his lifestyle. So he's a vegan. He pours turmeric. On all of his food. I'm an Indian person. I love turmeric, but you shouldn't be pouring turmeric on food, just for the (laughs) record. He does intermittent fasting and high-intensity interval training, and he makes sure that he sleeps a certain amount of time every night. And he's been really trying to maximize his longevity and also just decrease the amount of you know degradation that can happen in a body as it ages. And then when he's 32, his worst nightmare happens. He gets a stage four cancer diagnosis that within weeks leads him to have to amputate one of his legs. He has had multiple surgeries, including removing a vertebra from his lower back. And he's had six rounds of chemotherapy that landed him in MD Anderson in Texas because it was inpatient. And so again, worst nightmare has come true. And what was so fascinating to me about the interview that I had with him is he said, you know, Maya, I'm, you know, I'm sitting out here with a cup of coffee and I'm thinking to myself, I'm more or less as happy as I was before the diagnosis and that I would never have predicted this about myself. You know, the lows are lower, certainly, right? I have to experience a lot of physical pain and nausea, but the good moments are just as good. A conversation with my wife, a delicious bite of food, a beautiful song that I hear, those things are just as good. And he said, if I had known how I would psychologically respond to this diagnosis. I might not have been as fearful as I was in the first place about receiving it. And that was so stirring. Now now Scott's experience is not everyone's, right? For for some and I feel like I would fall into this camp. It would just be gut-wrenchingly awful. But it was a story of human resilience and a case where he had not anticipated all the ways, all the positive ways in which this diagnosis would affect him, make him a better person, make him more empathetic, increase his gratitude when it came to the smaller things in life that he had always taken for granted. And so he he shared that with me. And I just thought that was so moving and beautiful.
0: When your business is built on selling digital products like mine, online payments are the one and only way to make a sale. With online payments, though, comes the risk of those payments failing for one reason or another. I started working with Gravy years ago for this exact reason. Gravy offers a failed payment recovery service for subscription or membership-based businesses. With a team of US-based retention specialists that will contact your customers within hours after a failed payment, Gravy is going to recover the relationship and your revenue. Gravy can recover up to 80% of your revenue and get your customers back on track, and it's a great way to protect and increase the customer's lifetime value. In the last six months, Gravy has recovered over $28,000 and saved 638 customers in my business alone. Gravy is providing a free revenue consultation to all listeners. You'll find out how to pull your failed payment data, discover best practices, even if you don't sign up, and compare your metrics with industry standards. Book your consultation today at jennalovesgravy.com. That's jennalovesgravy.com. The secret to running a business that doesn't run you? Well, it's all in the systems. When it comes to your system for filing taxes, running payroll, figuring out benefits, HR, and more, try Gusto. Gusto offers easy online payroll benefits and HR built for modern small businesses with all the management tools you need in one platform. Gusto automatically files and pays all state, local, and federal payroll taxes. Plus, the fast, easy-to-run payroll includes W-2s and 1099s for your team, as well as tools to manage health benefits, 401ks, and more for almost any budget. All of your employee paperwork is stored online, and on average, payroll takes just 11 minutes to run. If you want to love running payroll as much as your employees love payday, try Gusto. Get three months for free when you run your first payroll at gusto.com slash gold digger. Try it out today at gusto.com slash gold digger. It's incredible, this notion, because I've really never pondered it, to be totally frank, about, you know, when you plan out conversations in your head of how they'll go or or decisions and their outcomes or feelings you want to feel or, or imagine, I love this idea of kind of digging into it. And I'm just curious, is this something that you want or advise people to let go of more because we really truly never know how we will react until we're in that moment? Or is it something to remain thoughtful about? That's an excellent question. I think.
1: It is both. I think you can learn a lot about yourself in terms of what your expectation is about how you will respond. In many ways, our expectations are informed by our current understanding of who we are based on all the data points we've collected about ourselves over time. But that is an incomplete model of who we are, right? Sometimes it really takes a true test to really figure out your true potential and also the various interesting ways in which you might respond to a specific episode. But I do think we should absolutely be cautious. And I will share another anecdote, which is I do think that when we put too much weight on our expectations about how we will respond to an event, it can close our minds to all of the various ways in which a specific change might affect other parts of our life. Because, you know, any given change, good or bad, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It's yes. It can have all sorts of spillover effects, and it's really hard for us to predict what that impact will be. So again, to give you a concrete example. So for a slight change of plans, I interviewed this woman named Elna Baker. Her lifelong goal was to become thin and she was successful. She lost 110 pounds in five months. And for a while, she did believe that she was finally living her dream life. But then slowly she realized that in losing the weight, she was also losing other parts of herself that she had treasured. So she felt she became more self-conscious. She felt she wasn't as nice to people in general, she felt that she was becoming a worse person. And so that was an example of someone who willed what she believed would be a positive change, but it turned out to have all of these unintended and negative consequences. So my my advice to your listeners would be to approach change with a great deal of humility, right? So it's not oh, I know if I think it's going to be bad, it's actually going to be good. Obviously, life doesn't work that way. Sometimes when you think it's going to be bad, it is going to be bad. But be open-minded about all the ways in which a specific life change might change you. And, you know, this is consistent with all the happiness research that Laurie Santos talked to you about, but also the fact that we are really bad affective forecasters. (laughs) But we are, every guest that I've talked to on a slight change of plans has been surprised by the way that they've responded to a change, good or bad but it's always there's an always an element of surprise and it was so interesting because i was sharing this story of of scott's Cancer experience with Hoda for a Today Show segment, and she ended up opening up to me and talking about her experience with cancer and the fact that she actually had a very similar experience to Scott, where she felt fearless and brave, and it led her to take on job opportunities she would never have taken on before that. So again, I'm uh, in no way want to say that either of their experiences speak for the collective whole, right? I mean, everyone's experience is, is unique, and every not everyone, you know, has the outcome that that Hoda had. But I do think that there's something for us to at least learn from their experiences.
0: Well, one thing that I think is so intriguing, and and especially too, after this, you know, past year, year and a half that we found ourselves in, is this idea of change. And and change has always been a part of our human experience. But Mm -hmm. I want to know, do you think we are more equipped to handle change today than we were decades or even centuries ago? Or do you think we're kind of like change-averse? Like it's the opposite of that. Yeah, gosh, I love your questions. (laughs) They're
1: so so (laughs) thought-provoking. Yeah, I think 2020 made so many of us ask that exact question. I certainly felt completely overwhelmed by the rate of change around us in 2020. I know so many people that I know felt similarly. And we all felt overwhelmed asking ourselves the question, do we have what it takes to confront the change around us and, and come out the other side? But then when I thought about it from a psychological point of view, from a cognitive science point of view, I realized, you know, while the specifics of what 2020 threw our way may have been unprecedented, our human ability to navigate change is not. And in many ways, our minds are built for change. And, you know, I just shared a couple stories with you from a slight change of plans, but we get these reminders in each of our personal lives, right? Yeah. But the pandemic was one of those rare moments in which the entire world faced a change mm-hmm. moment together and it took us by storm. And I do think that there are two things that make us better equipped to handle change right now. Number one, we have a far more sophisticated understanding of how our minds work than ever before and appreciating where these biases lie, right? We talked about identity foreclosure. We talked about affective forecasting. Awareness of the biases can help us better manage them. And as a result, do a better job embracing change. The second is that we live in this hyper-connected world where we can share stories and insights with people all over the world, right? And through this podcast, a slight change of plans, I've really seen the power of storytelling and just how much we can glean from other people's stories. In many ways, that was my inspiration behind the podcast. You know, th- there's no manual out there, there's no science textbook on how to navigate life's biggest changes, and so I thought, why don't we dig up the most fascinating change stories out there and see what we can learn from them, right? Like, let's see if we can think differently about the way that we approach change in our own lives just by hearing what others have gone through.
0: I think it's so interesting and I'm smiling to myself because last year, my team collectively went through some emotional intelligence training and we did this assessment and we found that many of us are not very flexible. While we like to think we're very easygoing and flexible in nature, we're also very type A and we love routine and things like that. And it just makes me smile thinking about how we were challenged with change, mm-hmm. but also how we became more aware of how we deal with it. And I think that there is so much power in learning how to pivot or adjust or be intuitive or, you know, kind of shift the direction that we're headed. And it's so interesting that you brought up the fact that, you know, the world collectively was going through this experience together, which is so wildly rare. My husband and I were literally talking about it last night. But it also, I think, really allowed us that pause to ask ourselves some of those bigger questions that will Mm -hmm. force us into necessary change. Do you agree? I completely agree.
1: And I do wonder, Jenna, in your experience, I know that you're a mom and I know that having a kid can be a profound change. And for many women, it can feel very isolating because you feel overwhelmed by the change and you do feel alone in the change. And I mentioned 2020 was this moment where we all felt like we were in it together. But I do wonder in some ways whether that experience prepared you personally for 2020.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because You know, motherhood, I think about identity a lot. And when you brought up identity foreclosure, I I think that's an incredible notion that a lot of us need to kind of ponder a little bit more, especially women, um, because I've learned especially over the last few years, how our identity is just constantly shifting. And especially in terms of having a career and being a mom, I feel like my identity is super fluid and has to be fluid to be the type of mom and the career woman that I want to be, which is present in both scenarios. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, really unique in terms of looking at 2020, because on top of the normal hats that. So many people wear, we started bearing additional hats. And, you know, there really wasn't an option. And so it's kind of sink or swim. And I think, you know, people found themselves in both places, probably sometimes in the same hour. Mm -hmm. Um, But I definitely think that this idea of identity is something that is even more present in women because of the roles that we take on and because of this shift as females want to have more careers and want to do both simultaneously. And I think it's something that really should be explored further.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree. And, And thanks for sharing that.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting. So I want to know, <laughs> I know people in my life and I laugh as I say this because I can sometimes be that person. But when you encounter people that say they hate change, or that they feel that they like they don't do well with change, what does that mean on a scientific level? Like, are there any nitty gritty facts that we can cling to if we're one of those people that can maybe help guide us through the evolution necessary when it comes to change? I think so
1: many people have an aversion to change of some kind. And I think that is rooted in what's called the status quo bias. And it's a cognitive bias that basically says we really like familiarity. We tend to want to resist change. We prefer the current state of things. Any perturbations in that can make us feel anxious and and uncomfortable. And I do think that this can hold us back because we often believe that the status quo is the safe option, you know, because it is the default. But if we can recognize that status quo preference within ourselves, we could potentially understand how better to overcome it. And I do think in general, being aware of all of these behavioral biases can help us understand ourselves better and and help us overcome them. Um, And so I certainly at moments in my life where you know, I've wanted to pivot, but I've been a little bit scared, have thought to myself, you know, maybe it's just fear that's motivating you right now. It's just fear of the unknown. And this is so relatable that, you know, in terms of people experiencing this, that you even find it among the most accomplished human beings in the world. So, (laughs) you know, I interviewed Hillary Rodham Clinton for my podcast, The Slight Change of Plans. And, she was sharing with me that she realized at this moment, right after she left the White House as First Lady, that maybe she was too afraid to run for public office. That she'd been telling all these other women up until that point that they should run. Mm. But that maybe Mm -hmm. she was afraid. She was afraid of the unknown. She didn't know if she had what it took. She didn't know if she'd be good at it. She didn't know if her personality was enough. And I loved that because I felt like, you know, that funny technology that can distort people's voices. So you can't tell. Who's yes. Who? <laughs> yes, I do feel like, you know, there are celebrities and non-celebrities on on our show and you wouldn't be able to tell Jenna who's who. Because yeah. how relatable is what yep. Hillary Clinton shared? How many of us women have felt exactly those same feelings where yes. our rational brain is telling us, you're qualified, you're qualified. And our emotional brain is telling us, oh, I don't <laughs> like change. I don't like putting myself out there. I'm, I'm scared. I have fear. And yeah. so it is a truly universal human experience to, to hate change in part because often change requires putting ourselves out there right? Yeah. Putting ourselves out in front of people and taking risks. And that's a that can be a very you know deeply uncomfortable part of the human experience.
0: If someone is listening and they feel like they're kind of in this identity crisis, or they're in the season of shifting and changing, or they're where you were when you found yourself in that basement with no windows thinking, this isn't <laughs> what I thought it was going to be. And I need to make a change. What advice would you give them knowing what you know about our cognitive behavior? Mm.
1: I think I would reassure people that by and large, again, by and large, not in every case, but by and large, people are happy in some way that they went through a change. Yeah. Because it made them a better person. It helped them discover something about themselves that they didn't know existed. It helped them appreciate a part of life that they had not appreciated before. And yeah, it's taught them something new and valuable about themselves that's helped them navigate the rest of their lives. You know, I'm reminded of the fact that when I was talking with Tiffany Haddish, she was sharing that she had a profoundly traumatic childhood. You know, her mom got into a terrible car accident when she was a kid. She became her mom became very verbally and physically abusive and ultimately Tiffany had to enter the foster care system because her mom was so mentally unwell and it was so terrible but she said that she that going through this harrowing experience helped her realize that she had a superpower and that superpower was that she could make people laugh and so she you know most kids would just treat the ability to make people laugh is a recreational thing, right? Something you just yeah. do with your friends for fun. But she used this power over and over again in her life to get out of dangerous situations and help her get the opportunities she wanted. And ultimately, you know, she's become, you know, one of the best comedians out there. And so she said that she now embraces change because mm. going through that experience as a child helped her realize that she had this incredible gift that she can now use, you know, at every twist and turn in her life.
0: When you bring up stories like this, it it really does remind me that when you look at the top leaders in the world, a lot of them, you know, came from hardship or have been through these mega life altering experiences or have been able to kind of take a message, turn it into their message. And it's interesting because I feel like I've seen so many interviews, read so many books where people say time and time again, that they wouldn't change it because those things made them into who they've become. And I think that is such a good reminder, especially when you find yourself in those dark seasons or those seasons where nothing makes sense, Mm -hmm. that somehow we tend to get to the other side of it where even the worst things we've been through are like the things that sharpen us to become who we're meant to become. And I think you know, the premise of your podcast is so beautiful because as a generation who loves to plan, who has the Google calendar pulled up in every window on every device, sometimes it's this welcomed reminder that sometimes a slight change of plans can really become the footing that we've been looking for on the path that we're on. So will you tell me a little bit more about your show?
1: Yeah. And it's rooted in personal experience because I am that planner type, you know, from the time I was little, I wanted to know what's going to happen Mm -hmm. in five years and 10 years and 20 years. And (laughs) it took a few really startling experiences with change to get me off of that train because I think it is, again, just a very natural human tendency to just want certainty in the future. And then at some point you realize that, that it really is an illusion, the sense of control that we all have. And, you know, of course, we can control things to a certain extent, but so much is out of our control. And I think that's a lesson many of us just learn over the course of our lives. (laughs) But yeah, a slight change of plans came from, I guess it was inspired by a few things. One is my personal story with change, right? Losing the thing I loved most in this world, the ability to play the violin at a young age and having to think of my identity as a lot more malleable and keep an open mind about what other exciting things might be out there in the world. And it's also rooted in my background as a cognitive scientist, right? I'm fascinated by how the mind works. And I do think that our minds have incredible capabilities when it comes to handling change and that the science can teach us a lot about how and why we respond to change in certain ways. But ultimately, A Slight Change of Plans is is a show about storytelling. It's an interview show. It features compelling stories and reflections from people who've navigated extraordinary change in their lives, changes of all kinds, right? Unexpected, expected, welcome, unwelcome, life-affirming, catastrophic, you name it. And I think there's so much richness in people's stories and there's so many insights we can glean. And so my hope is that Their stories will help us listeners think differently about change in our own lives.
0: It's beautiful. I'm so excited to subscribe and tune in. And I think it's almost this little dose of permission for us to open ourselves just even slightly more to the idea and the notion of change and to kind of release that white knuckle grip that we have on Mm -hmm. this idea of controlling the future. Maya, this has been an incredible interview. I am so grateful you came on the Gold Digger podcast today to share your story, your expertise, and all of your talents with us. Well,
1: thank you for having me, Jen. I'm a huge fan of your show, Um, so I feel very honored to be on it.
0: Oh, this was amazing. I cannot wait to hear people's biggest takeaways from it. That was incredibly fascinating. You know, I've been thinking so much about the roles that identity and change play in our lives. And I've questioned so much about how this past year, if it's made us more resilient and adaptable, or if we've maybe struggled more with that friction that change brings. This interview was just so eye-opening to me. And I think if anything, it gives us permission to embrace change on a whole new level, to trust in the process, to allow ourselves to be refined and challenged by change. And I'm so grateful to get this opportunity to interview incredible experts. Like it's a total pinch me moment that never gets old. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of this podcast. And I'm super curious to know, hop on over to gold digger podcast on Instagram and let me know, do you consider yourself comfortable with change or are you someone who feels challenged by it? I'm really curious because I absolutely feel challenged by it. But now I'm optimistic that I might just welcome change with open arms just a little bit more after this interview. Until next time, keep on digging your biggest goals. And thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Gold Digger Podcast. I'm over here giving you a virtual high five because you just finished another episode of the Gold Digger Podcast.